Thank you, Leah. Good morning, everyone. My name is Pastor Scott. So glad to be with you this morning. As we look at your sermon notes, we're going to be looking at actually most of Acts 14 and Acts 15 around this theme of conflict in Christ and the reality of conflict in the lives of believers and how we find common ground in our common pursuit of Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me now? Father God, thank you so much for a morning to sing and to see others on the journey. Uh, Father, we pray that as people come in here, that they, they feel seen, they feel that they matter, they feel that they belong somewhere to someone. And Lord, we know that we do that as a church imperfectly, but Lord, you do that perfectly. We matter to you a great deal. And so today, Father, this morning, as we open your scriptures, we come under your authority, uh, that you would continue to reveal yourself to us as men and women, young and old, single and married, at all places of our journey, that we would be men and women being informed by the sharpening of your scripture to continue to reveal to us your truth as we pursue you. In your great name we pray, amen. I was able to uh, last weekend take a group of men uh, from our church to Men's Malibu. And Malibu is a young life camp in northern British Columbia and uh, just located on a rock in Princess Louise Inlet that's been telling uh, mostly high school students about Jesus Christ since the 50s. It was built as a yachting resort, uh, just in some amazing country. And uh, we had a group of almost over 40, actually, men from uh, all the Bethany campuses, uh, a worship team, and some of the leaders of the whole camp, people from five of the six campuses, and then a smaller group from just uh, this campus, although we're missing Daniel and uh, maybe a few others. But... Um, Pretty amazing to be with 200 men uh, in, in a room built for a really uh, luxury resort, used primarily as a medium for high schoolers to receive the gospel, and to sing. Because what research says is that men aren't actually that involved with the life of faith anymore. Statisticians research declining numbers of men in, in church attendance and, and, and the role of you know, different things that have impacted men's heart. And, you know, other people write that even men that come to church, their heart isn't engaged with faith anymore. And I don't think that's entirely untrue. I think a lot of it is because for men, we love a challenge. And as a church, we have an, done a wonderful job of tying men in, telling them their voice matters. But one of the things research really tells you is men don't like to sing. We laughed about this with some of the men that were at Malibu. But I'll tell you, one of the most magical experiences this last weekend at Malibu was to hear over 200 men singing songs of worship to their God, Presbyterians and non-denominational Christians, uh, Jewish Christians, and people outside a traditional church setting, all singing words of praise to their Father God. And there was one song we sang. We just sang, and if you got here early enough, you're a good, good Father. It's who you are. It's who you are. And I'm loved by you. It's who I am. It's who I am. And hear this song repeated over and over again as the men are just belting this out, thinking about their own fathers, good relationships or bad, their, their heavenly father and a pursuit of Christ, and thinking about the goodness inherent in them and the journey, even though their lives are far from perfect. It was beautiful. You had to be there. Well, this morning as we open the scriptures... We come to this place in Scripture with a lot of conflict. In Acts 14 and Acts 15, just conflict. Conflict from the Pharisees to the believing Jews. 
Conflict from the Gentiles to the Jews. Conflict from the evangelists, Paul and Barnabas, and, and the council at Jerusalem. Conflict. To the point that even at the end of 15, there's going to be a break in relationship. Scripture doesn't whitewash anything. The reality in our life of faith is we will experience conflict. We experience that with roommates. We experience that with our families of origin. We experience that if we're married, we will have conflict. We often make an idol out of a conflict-free life. And the reality is in marriage, we put two people and say, you're going to know each other better than anyone. So guess what? You're going to experience conflict. We talked about it a lot, that the opposite of love is in fighting. The opposite of love is indifference. Conflict oftentimes can be a medium for the gospel to be exposed in us. We are cracked pots. We are broken vessels. When we're in conflict, it becomes an opportunity for the gospel to take up more residence inside of us. And we experience conflict with other believers, though it's far from desirable, they can become opportunities. We see opportunity in the scriptures this morning of Acts 14 and 15, conflict becoming an opportunity for the gospel to expand. We've talked about that before. We preached on that several weeks ago. Acts 8, Jesus says, you'll go to the ends of the earth. It always starts here and then here and then here and then all the way to Shoreline, Washington, where we sit 2,000 years later. But it's Acts 8. It's conflict that first, it's Stephen's death in Acts 7. It's conflict that pushes the gospel out. And though we all desire the pain-free life, the conflict-free life, we've already talked about that God uses the conflicts that we experience, though we, none of us would desire to be in those places, in order to further the gospel, both in us and through us, to the ends of the earth. And yet, we get to today, knowing that not all conflict ends perfectly. But, like, 200 men singing worship songs to their father... There is a heart of the Christian faith that we're going to hear about in Acts 15 that's it's beautiful. And we've often, if we've been hanging around the church for a while, we've, we've heard it before with our head, but our hearts may need to engage it again this morning for maybe the first time or the third time or the 33rd time that we are aligned as sinners, us all, under the grace of God. And it is the center point and not the exterior boundaries of our faith that gives our life meaning and our faith purpose. This is where we've been at Acts. So we've, uh, just in Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas are in Antioch, and they're preaching the gospel, and it says the Gentile church in Antioch, where the church kind of migrates from Jerusalem actually to Antioch, and there's two Antiochs, but Paul and Barnabas in Acts 13 are preaching the gospel, and, and Paul says, the Lord's commanded us to, to make you a light for the Gentiles, because the Lord is commanding us that we will be light and we will be salt, and we will be good, and we will be loving others, and God will be using us as agents of reconciliation. Be wary of the Christian always in conflict. Because Christ says to us as people, you'll be my witness. And so Paul says to, to Antioch in 13, we're setting the context, he said, God's commanded us to be light for you. And it says in verse 48 of chapter 13, when the Gentiles heard this, they were rejoicing and glorifying. The entire town showed up. And the disciples were continually filled with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And then in Acts 14, 15, we get into these settings of con conflict. And so today, our kind of big idea that we align under is to see the reality of conflict in our lives as believers. We will experience it. We will go through it. Some of you sit here this morning, you're like, man, there is a conflict. I'm right in the middle of even now. And others, it's more distant. We will all experience the reality of conflict. 
but with Christ at our center, that hopefully today the scriptures will continue to reveal to us new pathways for, for resolving conflict, and then also deal with the reality that not all conflicts can be easily tidied up. And even then, the gospel can be expanded in us and through us. Let's begin in the first point of your outline. Let's begin. The first point is arising in conflict. I sure hope you have your Bibles with you or your Bible app because we're going to be doing a Bible study this morning. It's really important that we're informed by the words of the scriptures. Always. The scriptures are given by God for us to know him through. And we don't worship the scriptures, but the scriptures become a pathway for us to worship God. And so we're going to be looking at at a lot of 14 and 15 this morning. Let's look at this arising in conflict in Acts 14. What happens here in in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 14. In in Iconium, they entered the synagogue. They're moving out from Antioch now because the gospel is always pushing us out. And they entered the synagogue of the Jews together, and they spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed, both Jews and Greeks. But the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brothers. I think we have a map here of Iconium, and you see where Antioch is, and the way that this whole, this is kind of typically entitled the first missionary journey. In 14 and 15, all these little cities that are lit up, the gospel is going to be going there. And often it's the conflict of what Paul and Barnabas are going to experience that continues to push out, continues to move the gospel in new places. You'll see there's not a dodging of conflict. There's not a dodging of conflict that happens in 14. Like even here, Paul understands the Jews are going to take issue with the new message of Christ. But where do they go? They go right into the synagogue to preach it. And so they go in and they're preaching and the non-believing Jews, it says, are stirring up trouble And so what happens? Therefore, in the middle of the conflict, verse 3 of 14, therefore, because of the conflict, Paul and Barnabas, they spent a long time there, speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord, who was testifying to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders be done by their hands. They spent a long time there. I find that interesting. I find that convicting. I'm a conflict-averse person. In any relationship, typically between you know, husband and wife or dating relationship, there's more of the pursuer and the withdrawer. There's people that you know, kind of seeking intimacy. They're kind of picking the fight. And there's other people seeking intimacy, withdraw from the fight. Neither are good, neither are bad. This is just how we're wired typically in human relationships. And, and as a conflict-averse person, man, first signs of conflict, I'll be backstage. Because I just, I don't want to deal with it. I don't, I, don't, I don't like conflict. And sometimes I, I, I lie to myself that if I withdraw from conflict, then maybe somebody else will deal with the issue. Tom and I, Tom Parks and I, were outside Bethany Green Lake a couple weeks ago, and there was a man who came up. He was clearly agitated, clearly not in the right frame of mind, and he's like screaming obscenities and, and, and cussing and yelling, and he's kind of standing in the corner, and he's brood of vipers, and he's yelling. And, you know, and I'm like, all right, Tom, you handle this. And I'll be, you know, I've, I've got, you know, that, that next appointment. Started. And even Tom's a good guy. You know, he's a better guy than I am. He's like, yeah, I'll handle this guy, you know. And I'm like, no, we'll handle this together. And so we just approach the man with love and grace. Like, hey, can we, can we help you with anything? And then as so often does, when you handle something head on, the, the conflict dissolves. And so Paul and Barnabas, in the midst of the conflict, they're just going to spend a long time there, hoping that in relationship they can find common ground in Christ. Paul models this over and over and over again in 14 and 15. So if there's something we're going to learn about conflict this morning, as we're taking notes, as we're thinking, something that the scriptures are opening to us is that we can't run from conflict. 
whatever, you know, with parents, with my kids, with, you know, with my employer, with whatever, that God is calling us as agents of truth and reconciliation to take hard issues on and to be people that can do it with love and grace and the truth of Jesus in us, but we got to deal with hard stuff. That's what Paul does here. And then continuing on verses four through seven. The people of the city were divided. Some side with the Jews, some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by the Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat and stone them, they became aware of it and fled to the cities of Laokania, Lystra, and Derbe in the surrounding region. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Again, we see it. Persecution, Acts 8. Persecution moves the gospel out. How does the gospel come to cities like Derby? It's, it's the persecution of what's happening in, in Iconium and in Lystra. And why does that matter? It just, it helps us frame the conflict in our minds. That when we're going through hard times, when we're dealing with difficulties, that we need to be people dealing with conflict head on. And then as we move out from conflict, as we're setting healthy boundaries, we're saying, you know, this doesn't feel healthy for me anymore, this relationship, this workplace, this home life, whatever, you know, as, as things don't always get reconciled, that the gospel will push us out. But what does Paul do as he pushes out? He continues to verse 7 to preach the gospel. And that can be a good qualifier for us. Is are, we, are we running from conflict or as we avoid conflict in a certain situation that we've tried to be an agent of grace and reconciliation and it's, it's not happening, the person's not receiving it, it's a toxic environment. We're not called to just go and be slaves to some sort of toxicity. We're going as agents of grace and reconciliation. And then here, Paul says, and we'll have to leave town sometimes. But as we leave town, what is our message? Is it of retreat or is it of preaching the gospel? That's what Acts 14 just continues to model, that as we go and as, as life turns out differently than we expected, it can become another opportunity to preach the gospel. Be wary of retreat without the gospel. Be wary of workplace that becomes easier, but not more opportunity to preach gospel. Be wary of a marriage relationship that starts to grow numb and not, not continuing to preach the gospel to one another. Paul leaves and he continues to preach Christ over and over and over again. And then verses 8 through 11, the gospel continues to push out. Now in Lystra, a man was sitting who had no strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb who had never walked. This man was listening to Paul as he spoke, who then he had fixed his gaze on him. He had seen he had a faith to be made well. He said with a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he leaped and began to walk. This is its own sermon that I'll have to come back to because something beautiful happens here. This man was, has, has never walked, born lame from his mother's womb. Luke, our author, wants us to know that this isn't just a, a, a little condition. This isn't just a like month-long kind of illness. He's never known the freedom to walk. And yet as he's hearing the gospel proclaim, something's happening within him. Because this man fixes his gaze on Paul, and Paul sees him, and sees that he has the faith to be made well. So much happens when we see people as they are. And so much happens when we allow ourselves to be seen in our lameness, in our brokenness, in our I've never walked beforeness. We don't do this well. We never do this well. Friday night, we had a friend over for dinner, and I was talking to her about men's Malibu and guys being real and vulnerable the entire time. Can I just be frank? She came an hour earlier than I thought. Well, if you ever come to our house unannounced, it's going to be a disaster. 
But if you come on time or even a little bit later, we will have the place picked up. And we will have the pretense that we always live like this. We don't always live like that at all. In fact, when we start cleaning up, my kids will look at me like, oh, we're having company, huh? Yeah, we are. Just <laughs> quiet down and keep putting stuff away. So we're having this conversation. Isn't it unfortunate that people can't be real and vulnerable? Like, yeah. And I'm like dying because I haven't showered. The house is a disaster, you know, whatever. And I'm like, I am a hypocrite. <laughs> I don't do it well. It's hard. The scripture says something happens here. The man, like Paul sees him and the spirit's moving in him. And the man allows himself to be seen. And he's healed. Not because of Paul, not because of some sort of new age psychology of like the wisdom of seeing, not because of Christ in him. How do we get more Christ in us? How are we more Christ to the conflicts that we encounter? We see each other well and allow ourselves to be seen by others. And so he heals this man and this like pandemonium takes place in this new town of Leicester. Keep in mind, they're in, they're in modern day Greece where the, the, the ancient gods were, were worshipped. And so there's this whole passage, I won't read it right now, but you can look at it in your own Bibles from 12 to 18, where the town starts to worship Paul and Barnabas. They're like, the gods have come down. You're like Hermes, you're like Zeus. They want to worship them. And Paul's like, no, 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 this isn't about us. This is not about us. This is not because I've done something. Be very wary when people put you on a pedestal. Because it's from that place with which you can always fall. And when we ascend to places of opportunity and promotion and health in our marriages and good things going on with our children and really healthy things, we're studying the Bible with my roommates, you know, God's doing some new things. Praise God. But could we just praise God in that and make it about Him? Because if you're anything like me, man, I got a ton of pride. And I'll say all the right things, but as the accolades start coming in, it's just like, whew, there's a lot of chest inhaling going on. That's like, it's not about you. Be wary when people put you on a pedestal. Make it about him. Make it continually about him is what Paul and Barnabas are doing. They said, no, it's not about us. And because of what happens here in verses 19, 19, 19 through 22 of chapter 14, the crowd turns on him. Because when the world puts you on a pedestal, when you, when you start getting too full of yourself, there's only one place to go but down. When we take the posture of our Savior who bowed before giving his final speech to his best friends and washed their feet, we say, that's a posture I can emulate. I can lead with one knee bowed. And that, that translates into every human relationship, even in conflict, take a knee and to see the other's point of view. And seek to be understand and may Christ be glorified in you and through you. Because in verses 19 through 22, the Jews come, they stir up the crowd, they Paul, verse 19, they, they drag Paul out of the city and they stone him to the point where they suppose him to be dead. And sometimes you read scripture and you just need to pause more. There needs to be more heavy pauses, like in music. He was stoned to the point where they supposed him to be dead. My goodness. And then the disciples stood around him, basically making burial plans. Paul gets up and he enters the city again. And the next day he went with Barnabas to Derbe, the next town. After they preached the gospel of that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. 
Paul is, is stoned to the point of almost death from the conflict he endures, and still they preached. And still they're going back into places that had been conflict before in order for the gospel to be made manifest. It's really hard to know how to teach this lesson this morning. Because you need wisdom from God in the conflicts that you encounter. Like I wish I could just say, well, it's right here in 14, 16. Just always do that. Because Paul does both here. He's both retreating from places that aren't safe where he's being persecuted, but he's returning He's both fleeing places where it's not safe and he's preaching the gospel in new places. So which is it? Are we moving out from conflict and taking new opportunities? Yes. Are we also in certain situations having the courage with Christ in us to return to places of conflict and say, clearly you're not done here yet, God. Yes. I mean, one of the powerful things in Malibu, that there was a morning Bible study leader and he, he taught Abraham and Isaac in a way I'd never really seen before. He's a social psychologist and a, a profound Bible teacher. But he talked about Abraham and Isaac and the fact that Isaac has this father wound from, from whatever happens on the mountain with Abraham. And Abraham this, has this deep and profound faith. But if you look at Isaac in the book of Genesis, Isaac doesn't really call upon the Lord the way Abraham does. And there's some family sins that start to happen. And so the speaker just challenges. He said, some of you in this room, you have father wounds a mile wide. And I heard that. I received that. So then we go, uh, <laughs> we go on this, uh, we brought guys back from Malibu to Vancouver. I hopped in a, a car with my family. We took this three-day boat trip up Night Inlet. I'll tell you about it some other Sunday. At the end of the trip, went to say goodbyes. We're packing the car. There's ferries to catch. See you, Dad. My dad doesn't really say the words, I love you. And then I heard the words of Scripture. Sometimes we return to places of conflict, places where God's not done yet. And I went back to the house and I said, hey, Dad, I love you. He said, I love you too. Just a step. Just a small moment, lots of work to do still. Which is it? Is Christ calling us to be leaving places of conflict or returning? Yes. And you'll need his wisdom and his spirit within you. Because yes, both here are modeled in 14. There's times and places where it's not safe for us, and so we leave. And other times where the gospel is calling us to continue to pursue intimacy with each other. This is the thing with conflict in the scriptures, that even when things get ugly between us, that God can redeem really hurt and broken relationships, either in that specific relationship or in our heart. As I studied this week, I was mindful of the story that I heard another pastor share uh, from experience that he, had, he was in college and he had, was trying to witness to the gospel and he befriended this single mom in his class and she was some years older and so they started to babysit her, her kid uh, to try to witness to the gospel. And then there was this like rally in Texas. And so he said, hey, do you want to come to a concert with me? And she said, sure. And he kind of knew that he was kind of doing the bait. So he was trying to witness to the gospel with her. And he gets there and the speaker gets up and he holds up this rose. He said, this illustration is called the rose. And we'll be talking about intimacy and purity and conflict. And he started the speaker kind of passing this rose. I said, feel it, smell it, touch it. Isn't it beautiful? 
And then he's kind of railing against behavior and boundaries and kind of railing on people that they need to somehow turn to Christ if they change their behavior. Missing the heart of transformation is always from the inside out. Christ saving us first by his grace and by his mercy and then changing our behavior and measures. And so halfway through this presentation, 30 minutes in, the guy, the guy says, where's my rose? And, you know, it's been passed through the hole. Some of you probably heard this story. It's a very powerful image. And he's like, you know, they pass up front. This thing's gone through hundreds of hands. They bring it forward, and the petals are gone, and the thing's twisted and gnarly, and it's just destroyed. And he said, who would want a rose like this? I'm trying to encourage people to come to Christ through better behavior. And the speaker, as he kind of unpacked that, this guy that I'm a big fan of, he said, Jesus wants the rose. Who wants a rose like that? Jesus does. And we've been trying to model transformation from the outside in, patrolling the fence lines. But Christ is calling us in our brokenness, in our frailty, in our conflicts, that he can handle it. Give me your brokenness. Give me your beat-upness. Give me the things that break your heart. Give me the experiences from the past that you should have never gone through. Give me these things and let me live in you. May we be people with the life of Christ inside of us and that that being the measure of how we encounter conflict with the wisdom, knowing when to step away and knowing when to return so that Christ would be magnified. And that's the second point of our outline that we're gonna look at Acts 15 it's this arrival in Christ. 14 is this whole piece of conflict. And Paul and Barnabas being you know, persecuted. And, and as they preach the gospel, the gospel is being expanded into territory through really painful measures. But what happens in Acts 15 is this arrival in Christ, the center point. Look at verses 1 through 6 in chapter 15. Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. They're putting conditions on salvation, about behavior, and about modification. For a Greek, they would not have been circumcised. For believing Jews, they would be circumcised. So it's easier for a Jew to make this rule, harder for an adult Gentile to follow this rule. Verse 2, and when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, because sometimes you have to have great dissension and debate. We're not called to just be milkweed flowers that don't have any impact in our world. Paul and Barnabas say, no, this, this, this philosophy is wrong. And so they have this great debate, and the brothers who are kind of impacting with these rules determine that Paul and Barnabas and others should go to Jerusalem from Antioch, and the apostles and elders concerning this issue. Therefore, therefore being sent on their way by the church, they take this month-long journey. They're passing through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and they're bringing great joy to all the brothers. Which brothers? The brothers in, in Samaria or the brothers who they've been traveling with to go as kind of their guards? We're not sure. But they're just telling Jesus stories, and people are experiencing joy. When they'd arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and apostles and the elders, and they report all that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed, believing Jews, stood up and saying, it's necessary to circumcise and to observe the law of Moses. And then the apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. And so Paul and Barnabas go back. This is called the Council of Jerusalem, the Jerusalem Council. And, and they're, they're, moving, they're moving back to Jerusalem to kind of settle the conflict once and for all. What is the conflict? 
We know from the study of Acts, uh, until Acts 8, the, believing, uh, the believers were pretty much all Jews. And then as, as they move the gospel, Philip and others into Samaria, then Gentiles start to believe. We have Acts 10, Peter gets his revelation, do not call anything unclean that I've called clean. Peter, if I'm going to send you into Caesarea to bear witness to Cornelius, I'm going to have to loosen food restrictions. That's happening in Acts 10 and then 11, 12, 13. The gospel's going out. Uh, Gentiles are hearing the gospel news. But there's still one important thing for the Pharisees, and that's this law of circumcision. Now, they say it's the law of Moses. It's actually the law to Abraham. In Genesis 17, just so we understand the context, why is circumcision so huge here? Because we can kind of read the, the scriptures with chronological snobbery and say, yeah, it doesn't matter. Circumcised, uncircumcised, it's not an issue. It's the biggest issue to believing Jews. And had been for 1,500 years. It had been a big deal since the time that Abraham followed God. Because in Genesis 17, God said to Abraham, as for you, you'll keep my covenant, you and your offspring, and throughout the generations, and this is the covenant that every male among you shall be circumcised. And that should be a sign of the covenant between me and you. And so circumcision was a sign of the covenant. And that's why Moses reaffirmed the Abraham call to circumcision. And Joshua, when they entered into enemy territory, before they took Jericho, the entire army was circumcised. A a picture of good belief is who's inside the club is people that are circumcised. And so later, Paul would say about circumcision to the church in Galatia, he'd say, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Circumcision, uncircumcision. The the gates, the things that we hold fast to salvation, that people must look a certain way, behave a certain way. Paul says the only thing that matters is faith expressing itself through love. Paul is, is kind of the big... A mover here. He's the one that's kind of opening everyone's eyes that the salvation story alone can be the place for people to begin and behavior flows outward from there, not the other way around. And so these dissenters come in, they stir up trouble and, and what happens? The Verse 6, apostles and elders, they come together to look into this matter. I think that verse is very significant. We need to be people looking into the matters. What's the matter in our churches today? Is it about race reconciliation? Is it about socioeconomic status? Is it about sexual ethics? Is it about how we're voting in the upcoming elections? Like We we can be people that self-identify with people that look like us, vote like us, think like us. But Paul is saying here, as the gospel continues to push out, he's saying God is going to do a new work in us crossing social divides. And, And so the apostles and the elders, they don't duck this. They look into this matter. They encourage him to, to look into the conflict and, and look into what happens here. And then Peter stands up after much debate and he says these very famous words in verses 7 through 11. After there had been much debate, people stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you. By my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God who knows the heart testified to them, giving them the spirit, just as he did also to us. And he made no distinction between us and them cleansing their hearts by faith. So Peter's saying when somebody comes to salvation, the distinction between circumcised and uncircumcised pales in comparison to their cleansing of their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? We can pause there. 
Peter was humble and he was vulnerable. And he wasn't just saying, you know, the past generations haven't been able to do well. Here's Peter the rock, Simon. He says, even, even we haven't been able to do this. He models this vulnerability. And then he says this in verse 11. It should be underlined in all your Bibles. We believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. He just is like, here, you know, mic drop. Here's what's most important. We're saved by grace through Jesus Christ. It's all that matters. We're saved by faith through Jesus Christ. It's all that matters. And this importance of the grace and what hangs around our neck. Scripture is full of other places of intimacy. The neck in the ancient times was a place both of life and of intimacy. So when Joseph forgives his brothers in Genesis 45, it says that Joseph falls upon his brother's neck and weeps. Or in Luke 15, when the son comes running home, the father grabs him and hugs him and kisses his neck. And so Peter's like, why are you trying to load people down to the point where they can't live and flourish? Now, the center point of our faith is where we find alignment. This is what the gospel is about, that we are sinners saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus. We're sinners saved by grace. And we enter into conflicts mindful that we too are sinners saved by grace. I want to believe it changes our perspective even a little bit. When you enter into a parent-child conflict, mindful of the conflicts that you endured with your own parent, mindful of the conflict that God has settled within you, it allows you to have empathy and compassion in a way you're not able to in and of yourself. Are we people mindful that we're sinners saved by grace? God has always been speaking to us this way. Because in verses 12 through 18, James stands up. And you can read it on your own this week. But he quotes Amos, this, this ancient prophet of Amos, to say, this will always be the story. Because over 50 times in the scriptures, God says this, you will be my people and I will be your God. He just lays that out first. Like, this has always been the trajectory, even through the Old Testament, even through the Torah, even through the wilderness, even in the prophets, even in the falling away, even in the silence between the Testaments, even in Christ's coming. It's always been the story of God reconciling people to himself. It's the oldest story. It's the truest story. And even circumcision and the dietary laws, they weren't meant to be rules for rule's sake. It was how God then was allowing people to worship him. And so James, the leader of the church, James, the brother of Jesus, James, who didn't even worship Christ when he was alone, but the first Corinthians tells us that James has a conversion experience after Christ's death. Now James is the leader of the church in Jerusalem, and he's like, okay, the biggest thing we have to learn today is that we're sinners saved by grace, and God has always been telling us this story. But then, if we're like, man, amen, sweet, done, no rules, love wins, be loving, it's good, and it, like this kind of coexist in Seattle, I'm down with it. But James like, all right, we're going to need some guidelines still. We're going to need some guidelines. Because given our own intuition and our own desires, we have this, this sin inside of us. And we can't be trusted always to make the right decisions so Christ be glorified within us. And so James just stands up and he says, I'm just going to minimize the hundreds of rules to three. 
Verses 19 through 21 of chapter 15, James says, It's my judgment we do not trouble those returning to God from among the Gentiles, but they write to them, they, they do these things. Abstain from things contaminated by idols, abstain from fornication, and abstain by that is what is strangled from blood. For Moses from the ancient generations has in every city those who preach him, since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. So James is like, we're going to have to still need some guidelines in order for us to understand table fellowship. And the table in these days was the place, that's why the dietary laws made so much sense to them. They were trying to safeguard their fellowship. And James is like, you know what? Yeah, let's welcome everyone and let's drop the dietary laws and let's, let's drop the circumcision laws. But let's not practice things that are distracting to one another. Let's not practice behavior that will break fellowship. And so he says, in order not to break fellowship, we need to be sexually pure and don't eat food uh, to give into idols because for a Jew it would be just unfathomable to even eat at that table. And do not eat things strangled by blood. Again, kind of hard for us to understand. Basically, he's saying, don't break fellowship with one another. Continue to align around the same table with Christ at the center and that our behaviors would be centered from the inside out, that we are sinners saved by grace, and then from there we're making our decisions in order to edify and to worship Christ. We're not called to be dodging conflict. We're called to be heading back into places that are sometimes uncomfortable to witness to Christ inside of us. And then this piece at the end, I'm just going gonna to jump to the end of 15 because it's, it's troubling I love when I hit pieces of scripture that are troubling because we know that scriptures aren't whitewashed and that Luke isn't just trying to teach us certain things that weren't lived out. Because reality, not all conflicts end well. Verse 36 of chapter 15, after days, Paul said to Barnabas, let's return to the brothers in every city we proclaim to the word of the Lord and see how they are. And Barnabas wanted to take John, John Mark, <laughs> along with them. But in, in chapter 13, John Mark had abandoned their earlier mission. He had, he had betrayed Paul. Verse 38, Paul kept insisting they should not take John Mark along, for he deserted them in Pamphylia and gone with them and not gone with him to the work. And there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they had separated one another. And Barnabas, Barnabas took Mark with them and sailed to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left being committed by the brothers in the grace of the Lord. And this is heartbreaking. I've read so much this week on this, and people are like, no, it's, it wasn't really a conflict. We make too much out of it. We'll never see Barnabas again in the scriptures. There's two passing testimonies of, you know, Paul gives him and throws him bone in Corinthians of like, aren't Barnabas and I both equal of wages? But basically, Barnabas, we don't know exactly what happens to him. What happens in Cyprus and beyond, a lot of, a lot of mystery. Conflict happens. And there's times here, it's not even over theology or doctrine. They're breaking fellowship over a lack of grace. And Peter is just, I'm sorry, Paul is just, he's just given this compelling testimony for all people to have forgiveness of sins, and yet he can't forgive John Mark. Are there people in your life that God is calling you this morning to extend grace to? And they break fellowship Barnabas had been the one to just caretake and lead Paul. He'd been the son of encouragement. And yet, not all disagreements end well. Not all centrality in Christ can make all marriages and old friendships and relationships with children or siblings or parents. 
Sometimes our wounds from conflict necessitate a healthy break. And that's a hard one to teach. But the, the Bible doesn't hide this. And if you're here this morning feeling like God is calling you to make a break from an unhealthy relationship, let me just encourage you. Christ can be your shelter. Christ can be the place where you find truth and healing and reconciliation. And maybe from that place, he'll send you back into sources of conflict. But you find yourself this morning with a broken heart, feeling like, you know, I've tried and I've tried and I've tried. Let Christ nourish you this morning. Let him bear witness to you and continue to grow in you. Because the truth is, conflict will happen on our journey. And when we can, we're called to be like the disciples in 15. We're called to be single-minded, aligning around our center. And there are times, though, when it doesn't always happen. And Christ, even then, could be magnified. Through the conflicts and through the disagreements, Christ can continue to be made manifest. Because through conflict, Christ can still reign. At the end of our time at Malibu, at the end of every night, we would just sit around a bunch of grown old men, you know, in our 40s and our 50s, you know, and like sit down on the, on the floor of the cabin for cabin time. This is what the high schoolers do. We're not going to do that too, are we? Yeah. What did you hear? What did you share? What's going on in your life? And as these men started to open up about their lives, it was like you could see the little boy inside of them still. And many times we were sharing about our conflicts and the way that Christ was continuing to shape us. And it was beautiful. So may we be people understanding that conflict is going to happen to us on the journey. And Christ is calling us, some of us in the room, to head back into those cities of persecution and to deal with hard things. And others of us this morning, Christ is just telling us, like, I will be your safe place right now. I will be your shelter in the storm. Come to me so that it all will be about Jesus at the center. We are sinners saved by grace, united by that center point. Will you pray with me now? Father God, thank you so much for our morning to worship you and to come under your scriptures. We pray you continue to teach us even now as we sing. Lord, remind us, as you've reminded the church in every generation, that we are aligned, not by our perfection, but by our brokenness. And not for our brokenness alone, but our brokenness in order to bear witness to your greatness. Lord, teach us to be people in the middle of the conflict to bear witness to you that we would actually stop and pray before heading back into that room to have that hard conversation. That you would be giving us courage to mediate in broken business relationships. You would give us the courage with employees or employers to speak the hard things and that all of it would bear witness to you, God. Make us agents of reconciliation Lord, that in conflict, you would be magnified. We don't, we don't want to crawl up on the pedestal. God, we want to put you on the pedestal. So Jesus, be on the pedestal now. And give us courage, Lord, to face hard things. And give us the wisdom when we need to just take shelter in you for a while. Until it's safe again to head back out into the storm. Lord, we want to be your people. Reign in us, we pray. To this we pray. Amen. One of the things we um, talked about yesterday at um, servant leader training we gathered is that um, we want to continue to be aligned under what we're aligned under. What is the center point of our faith? 
And one man suggested, he's like, you know, we just, we probably could do better to repeat the creeds more often. I thought that was a pretty good message for us. As we're talking about conflict, we're talking about Christ being preeminent I want to stand right now as a church. Will you stand with me? And we're going to read the Nicene Creed together. The Nicene Creed written in the 300s. The church has said these words for thousands of years. In every conflict and in every war and in every time when the church was feeling like it was being persecuted, they would align under words such as these to be reminded that the center point of our faith is that we're saved by Christ alone. Will you read this with me now? We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father, Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. And with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to life in the world to come. Amen. Let's continue and worship together. <laughs>